This is episode 4-0 of Free as in Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free as in Freedom. So we have, uh, we have an interview that we had not used uh, for some time to share with people uh, that we actually took at Libra Planet in March. Uh, and uh, as, as is our usual at this point, uh, only slowly getting out to all this audio that we keep stacking up uh, for folks to hear. Yeah, it's conference audio, but it is, um, it is completely new, never been heard before. True enough, and uh, it's uh, it was done in an empty room, in fact, so we know that it was never heard before because there was nobody else in the room. <laughs> well, it was heard by us. True enough. There was a, <laughs> there's an echo in in the audio a little bit. Uh, I, I presume Dan won't be able to get rid of much of that, but I think it's okay. I mean, you can just tell it's an empty room is really the issue, and that was better than doing it out in the hallway with lots of people walking by. So hopefully folks will enjoy that and, uh, and hear this interview with Allison Chaikin. So Karen, we're here at Libra Planet. We are. With a guest that we're recording uh, in person. There's a little bit of an echo, I hope it won't bother people, but uh, we uh, have a relatively quiet place to talk with Allison Chaikin, who's been doing a lot of work on issues related to free software in automotive device, uh, automotive industry generally, and cars in particular. Thanks for joining us, Allison. I'm very pleased to join you. I'm a big fan of the Oddcast, as you know. Yes, you, you, you made a point of showing me like where we are in your feed list. And so <laughs> it's, it's really great to have a listener who has some interesting stuff to tell us about related to what we cover a lot. So do you want to just sort of give people a general sense of what is going on in automotive and free software? The reason I came here to talk about automotive free software is that now is a moment of great change and flux in automotive software when automakers themselves are very interested in the possibility of reducing vendor lock-in, increasing the size of their contributor communities, all the traditional reasons that companies get interested in free and open source software. And in fact, I'm working a little bit with the Geneva Automotive Industry Alliance, which has started releasing uh, code in Git repos that can be downloaded by anyone and they're starting to accept patches and uh, really start reaching out to free software developers. So, um, and so they're a trade association? They're a trade association which uh, like many trade associations is expensive and to join and limited in membership but they really are sincere mm. about uh, working with outside people and they've even accepted two community projects to be official works with Geneva projects and they're hosting them as part of their 10 repos. Two of them actually are originating from outside the alliance. So are there any names of, uh, in the automotive industry that we would recognize that are participating? There certainly are. There are 168 members, I believe, right now in the Geneva Alliance. 11 of them are automakers. Uh, ones you'd recognize are uh, Jaguar, Land Rover, Honda, Nissan, General Motors. Um, there are a number of notable auto companies that are not members, 
but that are members of the Linux Foundation, for example, Toyota. So there's a tremendous interest in free software right now within the automotive industry. And uh, the automotive industry, since I've been involved with them, has come a long way towards the idea that opening up what they're doing and, and working with outside people and using best software practices will be beneficial to everyone. So I, I appreciate your work, but my, my big worry here is as they adopt free software, most of it's going to be under, uh, under most of under permissive license, some under GPLv2 only, and I presume their plan is to lock down the devices so you can't upgrade them. And that's my biggest worry, is that the entertainment system in your car, it's not related to the safety issue. There's no reason that a user shouldn't be allowed to upgrade it, in my view. And, and so I'm worried that most of these systems won't be able to have be hackable and be modifiable. Well, Bradley, there's a lot going on right now. Another thread that I wanted to highlight in my presentation is that lawmakers and regulators are starting to look into these areas. And so there's a tremendous amount of activity from the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration and the Department of Transportation here in the US, as well as European Union and Japanese standards and regulatory bodies who are starting to issue rules. So uh, we are poised at a time of peril and opportunity where if we speak up forcefully, we testify, we make suggestions, we contribute code, we can really influence how a lot of these things come out. Now to address your specific point, um, not every automaker is going to take the same technical approach, but there's a lot of interest in running the entertainment units in the car console or the what are called the rear seat entertainment units uh, on top of a hypervisor and uh, running Linux or Android or other operating systems as guests on top mm -hmm. of that hypervisor. And in that case, automakers, many of them feel that having uh, people install their own software will be fine. Mm -hmm. um, the idea is to provide security and safety at the system level. And you know, I think arguably the idea that the system prevents malware from doing things it shouldn't do uh, with a bare metal hypervisor probably has a lot of technical validity. Um, you know, maybe you really do want to have firewalls and packet filters and such traditional security devices between the real-time operating systems and the microcontrollers that are uh, running critical systems and the music player. I, I agree with that, and, and, and I'm glad that when I get on an airplane, the entertainment system on the airplane is not in any way hooked into the software systems the pilots are using. Um, but I also think it's really important that the, these, and, and Karen's really the person to speak to this, that these, these systems that relate to safety and human safety need to be audited. I, mean, I, I know, Allison, you're aware of Karen's work in the medical devices area. And I, I thought it was interesting when I listened to your talk earlier here at uh, Libra Planet, you referred to you know, literally people dying on the roads, um, you know, and I think that that's a really important part of this is to sort of is the, the safety security component. 
Well, I mean, I actually, I have a question sort of for Karen. Oh. Maybe she can lead in to Allison. So, so, I mean, can you relate sort of the medical devices work that you're doing, the importance of being able to know what's happening on medical devices to the safety software that's on automotive? I mean, I think there's a relationship there, don't you Oh, think? yeah, I mean, there's totally. Yeah. I mean, it's the same kind of life, it's life-critical software. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of the general category of software that, you know, that need to be auditable and need to be, you know, we need to be able to modify over time right. because, you know, when we put control into the hands of single corporations, then we have the situation where if there's catastrophic failure or something else that we can't anticipate at these, um, you know, at these companies, then we're stuck with what we've got from them. If we don't have the ability, you know, to, you know, we, we literally always joke and say, or not joke, we use the expression, look under the hood. Mm -hmm. And here, it's, well, you can't, it's and, quite and that's literal. That's why I think so interesting. So the, the question is, the way, the way I want to relate this to a question for you, Allison, is how how do you think the the kinds of our I know you're familiar with Karen's arguments in the medical because you're a listener and a fan of our show so you know Karen's arguments that she's made and 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 it's been difficult I think you would agree Karen to, Extremely get, to difficult. get attention yeah in the automotive industry are we going to face the same difficulty that Karen's seen in the medical devices industry is it going to be just as difficult to get them to see that understanding how the code works that's controlling the brake system and so forth are we going to face these same barriers of, of, of convincing regulators that making the source code available audit the source code, letting that the public know what's happening. Yeah. Security through obscurity. Basically, yes, that security through obscurity doesn't work. How how easy will it be to convince the automotive industry of that, Allison? The answer in cars is a lot more complicated because obviously cars are a lot more complicated systems than defibrillators and pacemakers. Um, cars right now, high-end cars that are shipping have 60 to 100 microprocessors in them, I'm told. And so the ones that are user visible, like the instrument cluster and the uh, entertainment system may be running Linux. And then the vast majority of those systems are legacy systems that are running uh, real-time operating systems like um, Green Hills Infinity or Nucleus or uh, VxWorks, things of that nature. And so um, right now, uh, all that's, RTOS stuff is, uh, per, uh, much of it is proprietary and closed source. There's nothing to prevent you, the car owner right now, from removing the closed source proprietary engine control unit, for example, and putting in your own microcontroller. Have you uh, done that? Uh, so I have uh, visited last weekend in Pennsylvania a friend who uh, has built his own uh, microcontroller for his engine and we sat wow. in his car and he was uh, uh, tuning his engine uh, from sounds terrible like it's going to fly out of the car to purring like a kitten by using his own software with his own uh, development board and there are projects like DIY, EFI and free EMS that have big communities to do that what? but you know that could be impossible or illegal in the future right. and I do think I do think there's a moment here where no one knows what's going to happen with this software. The whole um, event data recorder situation where there are going to be black boxes in cars that I was talking about today was inspired by this Toyota Camry sudden acceleration problem mm -hmm. uh, at the time that uh, I learned from listening to Karen that at the time that incident happened that the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration uh, had no software engineers on staff and they contracted with NASA to uh, do that investigation. So it's really early days mm -hmm. as far 
of awareness of regulators, awareness of lawmakers, awareness of standards bodies, of cars. And that's why I came here mm. to present this message to our community, because if we don't participate, we'll end up with laws and systems we don't like. Yeah, so I, I, think, I think your approach is, is interesting to me because you're, you're connected to both these communities. You're connected to this community of people hacking their cars and, and the traditional way we would think about hacking software and improving it, this fellow you, you sat in the garage with, and you're connected to the automotive industry trying to do work with this trade association. I'm curious to hear what, what is your plan to try and get those two communities that you understand personally both, but don't understand each other, how are you gonna get them talking to each other? Well, I'd like to uh, tip my hat to people who have been working on this for a long time. Jeremiah Foster, who is an American who lives in Sweden, is, and uh, to some extent Wookie, who's a Debian uh, yeah, Wookie, developer, yeah. mm -hmm. have been working on free software and cars for a long time and have really brought matters to where they are now, where automakers are listening. And I guess all I can say, as, as you have, Bradley, is rather than attack people, we're they uh, make policies or statements that we don't like, we should try to work with them behind the scenes and bring them into our community. And I really think regulators and car companies are listening for the most part, and we shouldn't be impatient with them because when we talk about permissive licenses and GPL and anti-tivalization, they have no idea what we're talking mm -hmm. about and we really need to work with them, which is why I brought a guest in today who's a lobbyist <laughs> for uh, small businesses in automotive here in the state of Massachusetts. He's not somebody you'd expect to see at a free software meeting, but he is interested in learning what we do. He's had a lot of the same problems that we've long had uh, in our community. We really have an opportunity to exchange information, to grow the free software tent, and to help people with allied interests who are working these problems from the other side. Do you think that the sort of the tinkerer's culture that's inherent in, in with respect to cars, you know, it might make the, it makes this battle easier or? I think it's much easier because the Massachusetts Right to Repair Act that I tried to educate the audience about in my talk was not passed because people from Free Software Foundation wanted it passed. It's because Midas Muffler, Napa Auto Parts, and Bob's Volvo Shop wanted it passed. Well, actually, since we don't have a recording or talk, can you explain what the Right to Repair Act is for our listeners? Sure, the Right to Repair Act is a ballot measure and law that was enacted in 2012 in Massachusetts. It passed by the largest margin a ballot initiative has ever passed in the state of Massachusetts and it guarantees that small businesses be able to receive the same proprietary information from automakers that they provide to their dealers under the same terms. And so this is a watershed moment for independent repair shops and parts companies uh, in that they now will be able to provide the same quality of service that dealers have been uniquely able to provide and give customers more choice in, in controlling their own devices. I was really fascinated to learn that there is an 1880 precedent, I think it was Winslow versus Simpson, which in case law established a right to repair. 
And so the fascinating question is, might that case law apply to other devices? Well, yeah, it's, and it's very interesting you're connecting, and, and you were sort of the first person ever to tell me at least mm -hmm. that there's real connections between the automotive industry yeah. and free software. I mean, I used to make the joke about, you know, proprietary software is like having your hood welded shut, and then people started to point out to me that there are there were these things that needed this right to repair law, things that were basically you could only control with the you know, computer or information that a, that a dealership could have. And and I think that, that connects up very much uh, uh, to the free software issue on the fights we had in the free software just to get specifications for hardware so we could write device drivers for them, which we still face uh, sometimes in free software today, but it's very similar. And the other place I think it connects up is the small business angle, which an argument we often made in the free software community is free software put the individual or small business free software developer on the same footing with big companies like IBM because they both had access to the same source code, the ability to innovate with it, the ability to improve it. And so I think there's two places there, I and mean, there's obviously other places as well that connect up to free software. Um, and I think that's really really interesting that you're making those allies. I don't know if I have a question here, it's sort of pointing at, <laughs> noting that you, you, were, you, you and a few other people were very early on seeing these connections, which I think is very helpful to the automotive to free software uh, connection. People uh, when, in our community, when they speak about growing the community and outreach, very often are talking about reaching out to Windows developers. But most people aren't software developers at all, and so there's a whole universe of folks who care about being able to modify their devices who hate computers and have never been interested in them at all. But as cars become increasingly kind of white box commodity uh, platforms, that are differentiated mostly by software, which I think is the future, then those folks who like hacking cars are gonna have to get the same specifications we've always needed for PCs. If what they're doing is essentially writing device drivers and shared object libraries to implement these interfaces, they have our same problems. And I thought it was very striking hearing Art Kinsman from Massachusetts Right to Repair talk about, for example, the FUD campaign, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, <laughs> that automakers launched against him because we know it's too. so <laughs> familiar. It's so yeah. familiar to us, and we know how to help with problems like that from long years of bitter experience. Well, I just think it's fascinating because I think this is the kind of thing that really explains to people who are not you know, hugely into free software or um, you know, software generally to understand why why these issues are so important. And I think that, you know, we often sort of talk about the hobbyist culture in free software and, you know, this seems like the epitome of hobbyist culture. And, you know, what is more American <laughs> than being able to repair your car? Like it's a it's you know, I you know, when we think of Americana, this is like one of those fundamental things that we think of. Baseball, as part of hot dogs, apple pie and Chevrolet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I I, I really think that this is really important work and advocacy because I think that it's really um, great to sort of use this as a tool to explain to people. You know, I, I wanted to follow up a little bit more on that, but I, I didn't want to diverge too much because I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you talked about earlier, um, about some of the improvements that are coming, um, you know, that sort of, you know, a lot of people sort of wonder whether it's valuable at all to have so much software in our cars that maybe it's not necessary. But some of the things you were talking about show how, you know, there are clear improvements, um, you know, and yet all the technical challenges that come with it. Well, right now, the leading cause of death for people in the United States between ages 5 and 34 is 
car accidents. Oh, is that true? Yes. Oh, I, I knew that, that as well. I knew that as, as well. As a New Yorker, 30, I didn't even... Yeah. 32,000 people a year. Wow. And while I actually think, Karen, that your case about medical devices implanted in your body having software whose source code you can't imagine, you can't examine, is far more appalling than the case of cars. The fact is, more people have cars than have... Uh, Absolutely. And more people are dying from cars than are dying from... From, from uh, software bugs on medical devices, devices, yeah. The exciting part about car software is that cars are part of a full intelligent transportation system. And there's so much possibility for making cars less uh, dangerous, less polluting, and it's kind of no secret how you do it. It's kind of exchange of information among vehicles and the infrastructure and the information exchange between vehicles is, is a big um, aspect of this. Uh, part of it is the advanced driver awareness systems. No, I'm sorry, advanced driver assistance systems, which I didn't have a chance to talk about, that include no-brainer features like driver drowsiness detection. Yep. Using a webcam, you can tell if people are falling asleep. And that's just mm. so obvious that that's a good idea, I yeah. think. I almost fell asleep at the wheel once in my life, and it was, it was terrifying. When wow. nothing happened, I, I hit the, actually the bumps on the left, you know, those bumps that they put in, which are useful as well. I, I drifted into the bumps, and that woke me up. But it was terrifying. Yeah. I pulled over in a rest area immediately and just slept and didn't slept for a few hours. But um, but yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think that's a very important safety feature because that's. I'm a very careful driver, and that's the only thing I've ever come close to doing completely wrong. So so many features are coming as part of these advanced software systems like that that seem perfectly obvious to everyone are a good idea. Um, there are other features that are harder to implement from the both the technical and legal and policy perspective, like the vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications. It seems perfectly clear to me that if the vehicle in front of me, even if it's a half mile in front of me where I can't really see it around a curve, is slamming on the brakes so hard that its airbag is deploying, if that vehicle could send a message back to me mm -hmm. over a Wi-Fi system telling me, start decelerating now because I'm sideways across the road and gasoline's bubbling out of the car, you know, that right. is valuable information. But if you <laughs> yeah. think about how to implement that kind of uh, uh, information exchange so that it's uh, robust against malware, it's robust against false alarms, and it allows the exchange of, of uh, public key encryption signed messages so that we can keep griefers out, without allowing cars to be tracked. How do we implement such a system? That's very difficult. And so part of what I was getting at about being patient with regulators and developers within automakers is, I think there are a lot of technical questions about how to have secure, private, useful systems that uh, people of good conscience don't know how to answer. Uh, the engineering part of a lot of these questions is hard let alone proprietary interests and legal and regulatory aspects. And so uh, I think it's frustrating to people sometimes when they see that things are going slow and they think it's because people that want to make a lot of money are dragging their feet or causing problems. But I mean, I I'm, uh, support the philosophy of free software and I don't know how to solve some of these problems myself. I have, so I have one question related to the, the listening aspect. Uh, it's a little bit of a tough one. It's, it's my last question, though. Uh, I don't know if Karen has more, but I, it's my last question. 
I, when you say that the automotive industry is listening, the thing that troubles me is that I've seen companies listen when their goal is to figure out what you're up to and sort of get around what you're trying to do, right? So I worry when I hear the automotive companies are listening to free software developers as a signaling that they are actually thinking, well, how do we avoid this GPL stuff? And how do, how do we get away with violating it, right? I'm worried that they're, I'm sure that's not all they're doing, but I'm worried there's a component of what their listening is that's related to that. Do, do you have a sense whether that's true and, and could they be hoodwinking us on this point? Um, I don't think there's hoodwinking. I think there's some, what they call NIH, not invented here mm -hmm. uh, uh, situation. To the extent that I've seen resistance to the outside community, it's mostly because someone wants proprietary software to be used because they wrote it and they mm. like it better. And they, or, or very often, I mean, the world of free software is so gigantic. I never heard of the two projects that won the FSF's free software awards tonight before. And a, a big part of the communication difficulty and education going on with the automakers is they don't know sometimes what outside best practices are. They haven't, they've talked to each other and their suppliers for years and the fact that perfectly good, well-tested solutions exist to some problem for which they're, re, you know, inventing a new solution, they, they just simply haven't ever had heard the word. Um, I don't talk to people who are really looking actively to, to avoid following licenses. I mean, to some extent, those companies probably don't belong to the Geneva Alliance. <laughs> right, right, right. But even within those companies, I'm sure there are people who fought against the Massachusetts Right to Repair Bill because if you've ever worked with companies that have thousands of employees, mm -hmm. I've worked for a couple of them, um, the left hand never knows what the right hand is doing, and on the one hand, you, you may have people like me trying to promote uh, you know, best practices and user freedom, and you may have other people who are suing some of the same people in another division who don't even talk to each other. So uh, I, I wouldn't want to claim that, that um, any of these groups speak with one voice. Um, and there is also, there is a lot of anxiety about and misunderstanding about GPL, as is the case with many uh, companies. Uh, people don't really understand what it means, and they hear uh, still a lot of FUD that you can't have a successful business if you give away your source code. I, I think we're past the worst of that. I've really been impressed by how far the automakers have come along. Um, they are essentially tired of, uh, of uh, being at the mercy of their, of their suppliers of software and having a different operating system that is expensive to develop, may be late to market, and must be supported by one vendor for dozens of years sometimes with cars uh, at, at great expense. So they really feel a motivation to change. But, you know, it, it's early days. The market leaders in installed base and automotive are QNX and Microsoft Windows. Linux is probably third. Mm -hmm. And Linux and other, uh, uh, you know, uh, free software derivatives could still lose the battle for market share. It could be mm -hmm. in 10 years that, 
Q and X will still be the marketplace. Yeah, I, I was amazed what I've been hearing, both from your talk and in other contexts today at this conference about how strong of a market Q and X as a proprietary embedded operating system still has. I, I, I guess I was under this delusion that embedded BusyBox slash Linux or Android Linux had beaten uh, QNX handily, but there's obviously sub-industries where that's just so far from the truth at this point. Apparently, uh, and I just, I do not have personal experience with QNX, but apparently there are aspects of QNX that work very well that are yeah. superior to I've, Linux. I've heard, I've heard it's, I've heard it's, uh, it, it's the worst kind of proprietary software, proprietary software that works reasonably well. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, QNX is owned by BlackBerry, a company that is troubled, and uh, you know I don't know what the future of QNX. And they, and they is got that in an acquisition. Like, how did they end up being the? Do you know how they ended up being the corporate owners of QNX? They purchased it. They, yeah, they, so they bought QNX an was uh, open source until uh, 2009 or 2010, I think. And there are repositories huh? out there that have that code. Oh, really? Yes. Wow, I didn't know that. So it's a microkernel that has bears some relation to BSD and mm -hmm. Linux, I guess, but that's about all I know about it. So, well, it's, I mean, Allison, this has really been fascinating. Karen, did you have any uh, more questions? You I did to... actually want to okay, ask Allison ahead. one more question, which is sort of, uh, we were talking earlier about, you know, Libra Planet generally. What's the best thing you've gotten out of Libra Planet so far? We're only one day in. I uh, just feel inspired by hearing people's dedication. I think everyone who works in this movement does so uh, with a lot of pleasure, but a, maybe a little bit of sacrifice. There are easier ways to make a living. There are people on staff at organizations like Software Freedom Conservancy, uh, GNOME Foundation, and Free Software Foundation who are really dedicated and uh, are certainly not doing it for the big bucks. And I really, Karen, I can confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like I get my personal batteries charged and get reminded why I want to make what I'm working on, opening up automotive software, a success because uh, it's inspiring to see the example of people that, uh, that have personally uh, sacrificed so much and really, you can see it in my talk. Um, my first slide now of every talk I, I give has a Creative Commons license, and I never did that until I listened to the free, <laughs> as in Freedom, Ugcast. I learned that from you. You guys have really made me think. Uh, well, that, and that's just great to hear, and, and that's and that's why we do the show. I was saying on the IRC channel the other day, we're we're at uh, we're at 1,500 teams to be. We're, we're we've we're stuck there at that number of listeners over many many. You episodes. say stuck? I think that's great. But I think it's that's what yeah. I was going to say. It's like it's like, it's like we're not, but we have we have an audience with people like you and Allison, and we're really appreciative mm -hmm. in it. And it's and you're doing interesting work, and I, I think that that um, while while you know I, I've I've given you a hard time at times about how and about you know how, dealing with these companies and so forth, but uh, but I, I think that. The fact that you're in there doing it is important, mm -hmm. and that you that you're somebody who really gets free software. And actually, uh, I don't know if you want to mention your connection. You 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 know some of the early FSF people from way back when you were in Cambridge. I was uh, an MIT student back in the '80s, and uh, I first learned about free software by getting a copy of the Yellow GNU Emacs manual when I was 19 years old, and uh, <laughs> I saw the uh, picture of. Uh, uh, a fat cat with bills falling out of his project, running away from a GNU, and I said to my boyfriend at the time who gave me the book, 
what the heck is that? What is this GNU manifesto? I don't get it. I thought this was a software manual. And there, <laughs> at that moment, I became enlightened. Wow. Uh, I, learned, I learned about <laughs> the GPL. That's very Buddhist of you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I really feel like it's taken me 25 years to understand the difference between free software and open source. And, and really, um, I've learned so much by listening to the Oddcast because I, I think just with the advent of Android, I've comprehended that Android is open source but not free software. Hmm, interesting. And uh, there is a difference. And I'm happy to say that the Geneva project, not to toot its horn too much because it does have problems, but the Geneva project is planning to take patches from outside contributors, which mm -hmm. Android really doesn't. Well, yeah, I and mean, it's a Google control project. I mean, yeah. I think that's the issue is it's released as, uh, I mean, it's licensed under a free software license, but it's controlled by Google. And, and what happens with, uh, you know, user ability to modify and run their own source card and code in cars. I don't know. I think it is a kind of nuanced answer because of the multiplicity of processors, the various degrees of safety criticality, and the plethora of regulations we're going to get. In oh, this one more question, actually. Is there anything that our listeners can do to help sort of spread this information or? Um, or help with sort of the communication with governmental entities and things like that? The real need, I believe, is to the extent that there are RFCs, requests for comment uh, about some of the technical issues, that people who have expertise can contribute a lot by weighing in. For example, uh, Christy Dudley at Santa Clara University Law School has spoken eloquently about the vehicle-to-vehicle, vehicle-to-infrastructure 802.11p standard and the public key encryption problems surrounding the implementation of that standard. And Christy is working with the Department of Transportation uh, on developing privacy policies and security audit audits and, and uh, such features for DOT. And uh, I know there are European efforts in that regard going on too. And the folks who uh, are developing those standards really are inviting public comment. Uh, there is an IETF, uh, Internet Engineering Task Force, I think that is, dash ITS, Intelligent Transportation Systems, that's IETF dash ITS uh, mailing list where a lot of this is discussed as well. And so these communities, automakers and uh, the regulatory bodies are really kind of asking for help to address these technical problems in a sound way. And they would be happy to have input from people who know about certificate revocation and public key encryption and, and things like that. And is there, uh, for those of our listeners who might want to get involved with right to repair uh, stuff, is there a, a specific website to refer them to for getting involved with right to repair? There's righttorepair.org and there's also marightorepair.org, which is the Massachusetts one. And apparently there are bills in various states of preparation in 16 state legislatures here in the United States. There already is a law passed in Canada. And uh, yeah, that's an excellent point, Bradley. Uh, 
there, you could, uh, in your state, advocate for the passage of those bills. Yeah, so I'd encourage our listeners in the U.S. to look uh, at their local state and see if there's a bill that they could help on. And it sounds like there's lots of opportunity for free software people who understand the issues of getting involved with uh, with, with FUD and fighting FUD about an issue of, of being able to modify your own stuff. It sounds like the, the right to repair folks could use help from free software developers. Particularly in Maine. In, in, Maine. in okay. Maine is where, after Massachusetts, the law is at the closest state of, mm-hmm. uh, of passage. I know, I know we have at least one listener in Maine, so, um, so hopefully uh, I'll ping him separately as well. Uh, but here's your ping now <laughs> <laughs> as well uh, to, to get involved. So thank you, Allison, for your time awesome. and telling thanks us all for, about this. Yeah, thanks for coming and giving your talk today, too, and for your, your overall uh, speaking and education. It's really, uh, it's really great and informative. Thank you. I find Allison so inspiring. Well, um, she's. Uh, she, I, I think she's really spent a lot of time to understand this particular uh, area of uh, of uh, open source and free software adoption in the automotive space. Yeah, um, and I think she's probably the single individual who knows the most about this. She actually uh, invited me to to moderate a panel. Um, at the Linux Foundation Collaboration Summit about these issues, and I agreed, but it was hilarious because <laughs> I didn't realize that she wasn't going to be on the panel. Um, and it was funny to sort of, she was actually in the room, and it was funny to be moderating the, the panel, and I was a little nervous that I would ask the right questions. Um, yeah, because people, were, people were talking about that panel. They were? At the conference, yeah. Cool. It was a, I thought it was a really interesting panel. I was excited to moderate it. It was funny. It's like, you know, it was one of those panels where when you're, you know, when you're moderating that you're really just asking the questions that you're curious about. <laughs> but uh, we should know that we don't have recording of that panel, so we should, probably shouldn't talk too much about it because the listeners might get annoyed that uh, we're talking, we're doing one of these things. We're talking That's okay. about I actually, we don't have. I think that the audio with, with Allison is actually better. Well, and, she, and she, I think she covers a lot of the issues in the panel uh, that, that people covered. Uh, it's certainly um, adoption of software in in the uh, adoption of free software in the automotive space is becoming uh, really common. And uh, and you know I'm already seeing my first uh, GPL violation reports, as you might guess, uh, <laughs> from from the automotive space. And, and Allison's been doing her best to help with those and try to build uh, conversations oh, awesome. with, with the violators. So it's uh, it's your typical thing. I mean, not no. awesome that there's a violation, but awesome that she's helping, um, you know, to build friendly relations. Yeah, um, but uh, in, in the end, it's still enforcement, so we'll, we'll still have to, to do something about it, uh, unfortunately. Um, I realize that I have, a, I have a lead that I might be able to, I might be able to make a contact as well. Okay, so well, I'll so, do what I can. Yeah, I, I, we've had an interesting. I actually, we have a, a GPL violation reporter who's who's uh, one of these uh, ones who's ang- who's displaced their anger to us because we haven't solved the problem yet. Oh, yeah, that happens a lot these days. Um, much sucks. more than it used to, actually. Oh uh, yeah. Well, it's, why do you think that is? Do you think it's just that people are sort of frustrated with this? We, in the last episode, we talked a, a little bit about uh, we got a little doom and gloom. Um, uh, and a little bit, uh, you know, I, we we talked about your dark ages theory. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think that that's what's getting to people, that pe- other people see it and they, you oh, know, I, that's I think why they're more, getting so angry no, about the violations? No. I think it's more that they, uh, the folks feel like the, um, the, the, the GPL doesn't work. I, I think people believe the GPL is magic. I think they think that... Um, it it's isn't? just so easy to to get that because it, it's required. Like that somehow, it, that breaking the law is somehow so easy to stop. I, it, you know, I'm sitting here in, in my office and and I'm surprised today to see nobody parked on the sidewalk. And, and I I consistently call uh, the non-emergency three one one in New York City to report these people parked on the sidewalk outside my office, and they still do it every day. And once in a while they get tickets, and it doesn't stop. And and right because they they basically calculate the price. Of parking there, yeah, and because yeah. the number of tickets that they're likely to get is the price they have to pay for parking. Well, I think that's how you and I would approach the problem. I think I think most people don't even think about it; they just think I'll probably get away with it, and they don't really understand the uh, the, the math of statistics. Such oh, that they are can they see. different cars that you're seeing? Um, uh, sometimes the same, sometimes different. It depends. I mean, the same ones. I'm sure they they just figure. But it, it, it's worth it. it. It's. It, I mean, when you think about it, there's there's. Um, and you know what? Yeah. Violators of the G, you know, GPL violators probably have the same analysis. Yeah, some of them do, and some of them just don't even don't aren't even smart enough to do the analysis. It's the same situation where they just do it because they don't know what they're doing, um, and some of them, they, they, it's I, I, people people will will try to get away with anything. It's I, I I don't have a very good. I mean, GPL enforcement is not giving me a good view of, of human nature. I once said, I, I think I've told the story on the podcast that, that Dave Turner stopped doing GPL enforcement in part because he said it made me think like a cop, and I don't want to spend my life thinking like a cop. And you, you start to think that way. You start to think that everybody's a bad actor, that, that nobody cares, um, that, that, you're, that, 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 if, if, that people would just ignore what's right if there weren't enforcement. And I, I pretty much believe those things are true <laughs> at this point. Um, and, the autom- and every new space, like when the automotive space comes along, there's, there's going to be uh, a couple of people who do the right thing and then lots and lots of, of bad actors who are either just don't bother to, to figure it out. And just try to try to get away with whatever they can get away with, and no, ignore things, and cut corners. So that's the new era of GPL violation. And 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 the thing is, is that I, and um, and Allison talked about this that they use separate CPUs and so forth. So the, the 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 onboard systems are not related to safety. The ones that are running Linux anyway. So right. it, it doesn't make any sense to me that they're that they're they don't have any sort of real argument of of you can't and, and frankly if they're not separated in the right ways that being allowing the user to upgrade the software is is not gonna or not allowing is not gonna somehow stop people from trying um, right and there are already people like Allison talked about this so people who have modified this modified stuff in their cars before uh, it had free software anyway. anyway oh yeah yeah absolutely. So. Well, what I really like about uh, you know one of about what Allison's working on is that I really love the idea of the right to repair. I think I said that in the interview. I haven't. Li- it was a while since I've listened to it, um, but I it really just sounds so downright American to me. <laughs> yeah, I, although most people don't bother to fix things anymore. Um, no, but they want to want to. You know, like. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose that's true. It was, it was interesting. I, I saw, uh, I saw, I actually saw last night for the first time in my life the Jump the Shark episode. Did you? Yeah, it was on. They were running a Happy Days I've marathon. I've never seen that. I've only seen the, that '70s show, like 
referencing and well, reenacting. There's been each other. so many things that have referenced the the. the, the I know, the but shark. that was like a whole. But I literally like, saw Fonzie jump the shark last night, and um, but then he has this conversation with uh, with uh, with. Uh, was the, it terrible? It was pretty bad. Um, but the, the, he has this conversation afterwards with the Ron Howard character who's deciding whether or not to uh, to sign this movie. They're out in Los Angeles on a like, vacation from Milwaukee. All, they all went together. Like, their, their auto mechanic who lives with them comes with them. First reasons unknown. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Ron Howard ends up... because Oh, no, he was supposed to have... Oh, I saw the... It was a three-parter, and I only saw the last part. But they did a previously on thing. And so Fonzie was, was up for a movie role... And then Ron, the Ron Howard character, uh, Cunningham, the the kid, um, uh, gets gets the movie role. And of course, I was joking with my wife. I was saying, "Well, what he really wants to do is direct, because of course, Ron Howard became a director." Um, but uh, but he uh, so, so he's trying to decide whether to take the movie role and or go to school. And his father really wants him to go to school, go to college, and get a degree. And uh, he decides not to take it. And Fon says to him, well, you know, I'm an auto mechanic, and I love being an auto mechanic. I love fixing cars. Uh, and so I was thinking about that because because you know, there was a time when there were people, when auto mechanics actually fixed cars. Now they load it up onto a computerized system, which is all proprietary software, and it tells them what's wrong with the car. And they just trust that software to tell them the right thing when the software is proprietary. It's the usual problem. So the yeah. auto mechanics have the same problem now that uh, that, that, that sysadmins do when they're when they're sysadmining proprietary software. Yeah. And so there isn't really being a, a, an auto mechanic. So not only is it individuals don't have the right to repair, auto mechanics don't either. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's. It, I mean, there are still there there still are things that mechanics can repair about cars um you know I, I think we're not at the point where it's all you know completely software driven but uh, but it is a much bigger part than it ever was yeah. before because well, i used to use the concept of the right to repair it's very like sensible in the case of cars you can really see it but it's it's such a broad idea i love it yeah although most people don't care because most people don't want to fix anything they want to throw it away Right? How many people want no, to get their phone fixed? They want to throw it away and buy a new phone. But they want to have the right to repair it. I'm not, it's not Even really Even if they don't want to repair it. I don't think they care. This, this I don't is, think this people is like, care this is the, in like, our society. The, they don't. The uh, allure of the maker, the maker culture, which has been like taking and off I, like wildfire. But yeah, but most of... So, so you've got MakerBot, who are a proprietary company. Um... Yeah, and, and, and we got the same problems happening there, that that's becoming a proprietary space as well. Well, I don't know about that because, there, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the maker stuff is, you know, open source this and open source that. Yeah, but and, it's a fad. It's, it's, it's a know, complete co-option. It's not actually, it's not actually a, 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 a movement for No, but a lot, of it, a lot of it is. I mean, you know, when I, I was getting, um, what is it, like Maker Magazine? I forget what it's called. It's yeah. something like that. Wait, O'Reilly's, I, I that O'Reilly's proprietary magazine about Maker? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar with I, that. I got that for a while. And, you know, they they provided links for a lot of, like, a lot of the articles had links to the software, um, to the, you know, the source code for a lot of the projects, you know, and with, like, encouraging people to improve the project and work together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I think there's this, 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 real allure to the idea that you should be able to like hack on anything and DIY this and repair that. 
Yeah, but it's it, my worry is it's such a small subculture, and it's it's the same thing that happened with the free culture movement, where they don't care about uh, how, how many of them are using Macs to do all this, right? That's the issue. It's, oh, it's, a lot they, of them, but they don't. I mean, that's the, come on, that's always our problem, though. I mean, how many free software conferences have you gone to where you know most people are using Macs? I haven't been to a free software conference. I've been to lots of open source conferences where that's true, yes. <laughs> and Linux conferences, uh, which that's that's the funniest part. It's Linux, Linux specific conferences and people running. That's really crazy, but it's true. Yeah, of course it's true. Although I asked, um, this is in an, 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 an interview that I think will hopefully be pu- published by the time this is out, but, uh, but I, interv- uh, I and uh, Flavia, who is working with the GNOME marketing team, interviewed uh, Greg Cage and I asked him so what do you think about all the Linux kernel hackers that use Mac OS and he said I don't really know who you're talking about hmm yeah I, I actually the, that was really encouraging to me and I was like you know like when I've been to Linux events and I see all the Macs and he's like you know and he said you know I, he, uh, he said that there are more people using Mac hardware and, um, you know, and replace the software. But I wasn't, I, I thought I had seen a lot of people using Mac OS, but maybe that's no oh, longer I the case. I have seen that, but they're the, the, I mean, the thing is, is, is that at these Linux uh, events, the Linux Foundation events, for example, um, which are the pro- most, most of the Linux events now, I think you asked the question the wrong way because, uh, I think Greg is correct that there. I don't know of anybody who actually has patches in the upstream kernel who uses macOS as their primary operating system. There are people like David Woodhouse who buy the Mac hardware and then. Put, oh yeah, there are a lot of people like that. A lot of GNOME Linux people on it. actually do that. But um, but but I, I, w- I don't right. want to do that. I, I thought about. It. I got a new laptop recently, and I decided I don't want to do that because I don't want anyone to be confused from a distance yeah, about true. what I'm using. Yeah, I want people to see that I'm not using a Mac. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And so that's where the confusion comes from. I think. But I think Greg's right. There are many Linux uh, developers, actual developers, who are using it, uh, who actually work on the kernel. But certainly, there are lots and lots of people at the companies that employ them who go to these events with Mac OS. Um, I, somebody yeah. gave a talk on my track at Collab Summit using a, using a Mac. That's crazy. So that's uh, that's the world we live in. But uh, anyway, so I hope folks enjoyed the interview with uh, with Allison about the the automotive issue. And I agree with you, Karen, about the right to repair. It's an important concept. I wish more people cared about it. Yeah, me too. Hopefully, we can find ways to bring attention to it. Actually, I think it uh, it it it's a it's a new way of talking about the same issues. All right. Well, hopefully we're, we've got a little bit more on schedule now and have episodes coming out. And then we'll tr- Karen and I will keep trying to get them out as, as best we can, fitting it in with uh, everything else we have to work on. Thanks for listening. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's f a i f.us. 
So now it's test recording. Okay. Testing. <laughs> you have to say more than that. Like Especially what? we've never used this before. I know, but well, we did use it in the in FOSDEM. Yeah, but we never used it in this room, in this situation, in this place. But this is in so this much time. more ideal than that was. What? Who? Where? This is so much better than that was. I guess. You're not talking to it. Do I have to? I don't know. Oh. <laughs>